uh, the impact on COVID-19, particularly within our academic now, institutions. Cal is one of potentially thousands of academics across the country whose short-term or casual contracts are being axed as part of cost-saving measures. The coronavirus pandemic has had an undeniable impact on higher education, with scholars and educators pivoting to online teaching and research while adjusting to new demands on campus, in the classroom, and at home. But with these challenges come new opportunities for scholars to collectively rebuild an academe that is more responsive to global crises, is more inclusive of new scholars' approaches and methods, is more accessible to both scholars and non-academics around the world, and is more open to new forms of scholarly contribution. In other words, if academia is now going through an extinction event, as one commentator has proclaimed, then what will a rebirth of academia, and Japanese studies more specifically, look like? And how can we assure that the new form academia takes embodies a lasting change for the better? How are scholars of Japanese studies around the world reacting to new academic realities? What privileges do we as scholars and educators of Asia possess? And finally, how can we use those privileges to improve our academic environment? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the future of academia and Japanese studies more specifically, I talked with Dr. Paula R. Curtis, postdoctoral research associate and lecturer in history at Yale University. During the summer of 2019, Dr. Curtis hosted a virtual roundtable entitled The Rebirth of Japanese Studies, available at prcurtis.com. I started by asking Dr. Curtis to explain the background, planning, and organization of the virtual roundtable. Well, in 2019 at the Association for Asian Studies, there was a roundtable entitled The Death of Japanese Studies. And I can remember there was a sort of mixture of excitement and disbelief at the title, which was certainly intended to be provocative. The panel drew over 100 attendees, and it began some really important discussions on how Japanese studies has changed over the decades. They talked about shifting geopolitics, the rise of China, a lack of resources for departments, certain geographic areas with lower numbers of Japan specialists, and kind of what all of these things meant. But after the roundtable, a lot of people I spoke with felt very disappointed. They either didn't feel that their experiences had been represented in the discussions, or they felt frustrated that these conversations were focused on sort of perennial complaints that don't seem to change. I decided to build on the foundations of that roundtable and feature a complimentary session, which became the rebirth of Japanese studies. And this roundtable was to be focused on the voices of diverse early career scholars with an eye toward generating discussions on current experiences and, more importantly, practical advice on how to generate more support for the field now and work on positive transformations in the future. There was a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the roundtable as we planned it, so we were pretty disappointed not to be able to attend AAS after the outbreak of COVID-19. I, like many participants and potential attendees, felt that there were a lot of important topics that we had to address, especially given the current precarity of academia in general. So I decided to move to a virtual format. We debated what kind of virtual format would be best for a while, but in the end, I felt that if we converted to a written form that allowed for people to also engage through written responses, it would be more likely to gain a wider audience while creating a space with more equitable access. Many people can't afford to attend expensive conferences in the U.S. They have personal responsibilities that make it difficult to take that sort of time away several days at a time. 
or any other number of reasons why they'd be unable to attend. And not only that, but if we allowed written submissions, people could also do this anonymously. There are a lot of graduate students and pre-tenure scholars who regularly hesitate to speak up in open conference forums, especially when given the opportunity, since they don't know how it might affect their careers. If there might be someone in the audience who would later serve on a committee, a fellowship review, and if they don't like what they're going to say, then they feel that it could be dangerous. Going digital gave us a way to reach more people, create more equitable access to the discussions, and also build in flexibility for readers and writers in a time of global pandemic when people have even more intense demands on their time. So they could read when they had the time, and within our two-week window for submissions, they could write when they had the time. And that kind of eased the burden of participation. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Doing that virtual format definitely got a lot more flexibility. People could write in at different times. And you got a very impressive lineup together, dozens of great responses from around the world. But you mentioned that you were doing all of this, hosting it all on your own website, doing all the organization. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how much time, you know, went into this? So can you talk us through this process, you know, identifying the people, all of the emails that went back and forth, and then the actual coding of the website itself? How much time is... A very good question and a very difficult one to answer. For the general planning of the virtual format, I worked with the original roundtable participants to get their opinions on how to best represent their ideas digitally, especially since they were originally the core of the event. I posed ethical concerns about content, drafted rules that we might want to implement for us to discuss to ensure that people felt comfortable submitting, and at the same time, no one person might end up dominating the conversations. So we established rules of engagement in conversation with one another. As for the site itself, I wanted to both have a lot of control over design and user experience for the virtual roundtable, but I also didn't want to offload that labor onto someone at AAS. They were dealing with plenty on their own, having the event canceled and trying to figure out all of those logistics. So I decided to host it on my own website. And my site is a static site as opposed to a dynamic one, which means that I'm not uploading content to a pre-established content management system like WordPress or Squarespace, which has all of the designs already kind of prepared for you that you tweak. I code the pages in HTML, Markdown, CSS, and sometimes that can take hours, especially if you're not sure where in your code you have that critical error that's making everything not work. I set up the Google form for people to submit their responses, which sounds fairly straightforward, but also means that I was collating all of those submissions, making sure I had their information correct, looking for typos or anything that didn't meet our rules of engagement, fielding questions from writers, special requests for links or footnotes to be included, deciding the best order to present the work in, and then actually coding everything. One of the user considerations that I wanted to think about and that took more time than anticipated was linking back to any previous roundtable submission when someone would reference it in their own response. There have been a lot of studies about how if people have to wade through one or two, three clicks to get to a source of information, they just won't do it. So I wanted to make sure that if someone said, as stated in X's response, it was quick and simple for people to get to that piece immediately and dedicate time to reading what was there. In addition, throughout the process, which ran from 
sometime in April when the planning was first underway through the end of June when I wrote my closing remarks. I was also advertising through Facebook, Twitter, HNET. I was contacting people I hoped might add their thoughts to the roundtable and generally trying to impress upon the community at large how important it was to be a part of the conversation we were having. Thank you for walking us through that. I mean, that's an excellent illustration of how much work goes into even the back end and even the stuff that's frontward facing, you know, the, the stuff that we engage with. You know, there has a lot of work that goes into the production of that. Uh, but as you mentioned, you just completed your own concluding thoughts. You went through a number of rounds, collected several dozen submissions for further response. Seeing all those responses, can you talk about, you know, what has the reaction been to the roundtable and possibly even summarize for us some of the main themes you found in the responses? So far as I can tell, the reaction has been wholly positive. Even people who in the end decided not to write sent me very kind emails or direct messages telling me just how much they appreciated that this space existed and that there were open conversations being had about the state of the field and its future. A good number of people also said that they had absolutely no idea that people like such and such a writer had had these kinds of experiences, or they had no idea that X person was in the field at all. A first-year PhD student told me that it was mind-blowing to see all of these perspectives in the field they had never considered. So in this sense, a lot of people reported that it helped them feel more engaged and knowledgeable as a part of the Japanese studies community. There were so many wonderful and relevant ideas put forth that I'm afraid I'm bound to miss something in articulating the main themes. But writers consistently identified a need to reconsider what Asian studies and Japanese studies more broadly defined really are, the ways in which these fields are ever evolving and how the demands of many departments for Japan specialists to be able to teach or research the entirety of Asia affects graduate training and job or research opportunities. Many of the writers talked about re-envisioning our undergraduate teaching to help students see global perspectives or broader events and concepts around them through the lens of Japan in a way that not only inspires them to stick with our Japanese studies courses, but to see the skills they gain through humanities and social sciences education as transferable to careers outside of academia. Another major theme was a greater need for more interaction with international colleagues, decentering North American academic circles, and creating more bridges with programs and scholars in Japan, Europe, Australia, Latin America, and many other places. Of course, it's to be expected that a lot of participants also identified larger systemic problems in academia that aren't unique to Japanese studies, such as the overcomplicated and overdemanding nature of job applications, especially for contingent positions, and overemphasis on traditional publishing without recognition of other forms of labor, ongoing racial and gender imbalances in conferences, publications, hiring, and all kinds of other areas as well as financial disparities in our departments that perpetuate status hierarchies in the educational system and form barriers to access and opportunities for many, despite the fact that there's brilliant work being done by early career scholars at schools that aren't necessarily big name coastal elite institutions. I think that in reading these broader issues, a lot of people might ask, well, everybody is facing this. It's not just this one field. So why are we having this conversation? But I think that precisely because we are a community of scholars and educators who are connected, in this case through Japanese studies, we have the ability and the opportunity to find ways to support one another and share these experiences with trusted colleagues and friends. Maintaining that sense of solidarity and generating mutual support really matters. 
and on that point on ways that we can support one another and support our students, support each other and make the field a better place. In your concluding thoughts of the panel, you offer over a dozen very poignant, very incisive invitations to reflect on the privileges we as academics possess and to encourage us all to think about how we might wield those privileges to rebuild the field of Japanese studies. I was really curious, you know, if you could tell us a little bit more about these reflections and what you hope we as academics realize about our own positions. I think that sustaining a rebirth, if that's what we want to call it, starts with conversations like these. We're very used to expressing our frustrations to our closest colleagues or commiserating with friends in academia, but a broader, more visible acknowledgement of the current state of the field and its enduring inequities has to happen in a real way. In my closing remarks, I noted that although this virtual roundtable was an important first step, it was also indicative of some of the ongoing problems that we have in our field with representation. Of the 41 writers who submitted to the roundtable, more than three-fourths of them were white, and just under half were women. Only two people who identify as Japanese or Japanese-American took part, and both of them are employed in the U.S., so there's certainly a greater need to hear from Japanese scholars about engagement with and issues in Japanese studies. And as many people know, a petition was recently sent to AAS demanding more support for Black scholars of Asia, who are comparatively few. And this needs serious consideration, not just by academic organizations, but by individuals who are training the next generation of scholars. We cannot stop at thinking of inclusivity in the field as being just more scholars of Asian descent? Are we promoting indigenous voices, a participation of a wide variety of people of color, of queer scholars? And at the same time, while generating more welcoming spaces, we have to be wary of falling into the trap of burdening Black, indigenous, and other scholars of color with service and labor to meet our expectations of allyship and inclusivity or demanding that their research just be on issues that directly relate to their own identities. The work has to start with us, and it can't just be the extension of invitations to be a part of our spaces, but has to be stepping back, helping to make room, and being actively anti-racist, anti-sexist, and creating environments that promote diverse scholars who have ownership of the academic world. All of this is not to say that the contributions we had to the roundtable were not immensely valuable, but there are still voices that need to be elevated and experiences that need to be centered in our conversations about change. We all need to reflect on what our own privileges are, whether we're senior faculty who know how to intervene with admin or have strong voices on hiring committees, whether we're librarians or archivists who have expertise in areas that are absolutely essential to supporting scholarship and education, or whether we're graduate students who often become the voices of new research and analytical methods pushing departments to think outside the box. I think that academics of all stages need to consider the climate that they do or don't want for their communities. And part of our privilege is also understanding our positionality from a broader social perspective and understanding what we can do about it and with it. My point is, the field of Japanese studies cannot be sustained without solidarity. And the greater awareness we gain of our own circumstances and the circumstances of those around us, the greater our ability to provide real allyship and accomplish coordinated efforts to usher in a rebirth in Japanese studies. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening. <laughs>